Thank you. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to be back in Calgary. It always feels like home uh, when we uh, get to come back here and, of course, uh, get to come and visit our own family. And uh, we're going to have a great week together with our kids as uh, we look forward to a week of vacation here. But uh, a couple of months ago, Pastor Matt called me up and said, hey, do you think it would work out for you to come and uh, come and speak to us while he's on sabbatical? And I said, sure, that sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, to come and uh, to a place that I love and a people that I love and is very special to us. Uh, so you've been in a, in a community uh, building series. And as Matt and I were talking, he said, talk to us about what it means to be on mission together, uh, coming out of community. And so that's what we're going to do for the next two weeks. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about loving the world Jesus's way. And next week I'm going to talk about changing the world Jesus's way. Um, so let's just pray and we're going to dive in. Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for this community and uh, how you're drawing people to yourself and how you're walking with people. As we heard, there's been some uh, significant loss and tragedy in the last uh, few weeks, uh, part of this community. And and Lord, you ask us to walk together, whether we are uh, celebrating or whether we are mourning, uh, because it's all part of what it means to be a community. So I pray that you would... uh, be with those who are mourning, that uh, the community would be your hands and feet and care, the hugs, the encouragement, uh, perhaps the gifts of meals or whatever it might be to bring care to those difficult situations and also to celebrate like with Colton and Angel and the joy of bringing new life uh, into this world. And so we celebrate in the good times and we walk together in difficult times. And you also call us to be a community that represents you to this world, that reflects you to this world. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. And so I pray that you would guide us in these conversations. But more than anything, Father, you know exactly what we walked in the door with. And by your spirit, I know you want to touch us, uh, whether that's instruction, encouragement, uh, challenge, uh, teaching. And I thank you that by your spirit, you will do that as we open up our hearts and minds to you today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, So we've been living in very interesting times, of course, in the last couple of years. And uh, I've often said COVID really has been uh, the great revealer. I think it's revealed a whole lot of things um, about us uh, individually, about our society, about churches, uh, about our governments. It's, It's revealed all kinds of things which pressure often does in our lives. I mean, that's what pressure does. It's interesting because even coming into COVID, People were increasingly losing trust in our institutions. Uh, it was sort of a trend that had been happening for a while. And then that got, uh, was co- compounded by often com- confusing and contradictory information regarding what we should be doing to take care of ourselves, depending where you lived or what your government said, and, and depending if it's federal or provincial or perhaps even local, and then uh, depending on your workplace or your school or your church. So there's all this confusing information that was happening. And one of the things that resulted out of that was a whole bunch of conflict in relationships. And uh, sometimes it was at church. Sometimes it was at families. It could be at work. It could be uh, other places in society. And we saw that manifest in all kinds of ways. One of the other trends that was happening pre-COVID that we could track uh, was the increase in anxiety and depression that was happening. And uh, especially in younger generations. And so that was moving along. And it's like COVID came and dumped gasoline on that issue. And so all the trends in North America that are being tracked uh, talk about that. And we know in our church, our care department, uh, I serve at a church in Burnaby, uh, BC. And our care department has never been more busy. Uh, And all the counselors that we refer to, the waiting lists are longer and longer and longer. So we are seeing this, uh, the, the manifestation of anxiety, depression, relational breakdown in very practical ways happening all over the place. Um, I think added to that is our cultural trends around uh, identity issues, all the identity confusion and struggles that people are walking through, especially, again, the younger generations. Uh, we have the peer pressure issues, the bullying issues that are have, happening, uh, some of the violence issues, especially in the U.S., uh, that are just uh, so difficult to understand and just make us scratch our heads again this last week. I mean, you, you just shake your head and go, what is going on? 
And, but it just ends up creating more and more tension in people's lives and more and more anxiety. And one of the things we're seeing out of that, I think, is people in general in Canada are looking for truth. They're looking for stability. They're looking for something or someone to actually go, what, is, what can I count on? Who can I count on in this world? And I know, uh, I think the same thing's happening here. I know we're seeing this in, in B.C., is we're seeing people walk into our church uh, who've never had a relationship with Jesus just going, is there something here? Is there truth here? Is there something I can actually hang my hat on or, or, or some stability for my life? And as I talk to pastors across Canada, we see that trend right across the country because people are searching. That's one of the net results of all this stuff that's happened over the last couple of years is people are searching, they're looking for community, they're looking for something stable, they're looking for peace in the midst of their anxiety. I think we're in the greatest shakeup in Canadian society since World War II. Uh, I don't think anything has happened, uh, at least not in my lifetime, that comes close to the shakeup that I've observed in these last couple of years. Now, people, I think, are hungry for good news. I think people are hungry for something that actually is hopeful, for something that is actually fundamentally uh, gives them a way to wake up in the morning and go, there is purpose in the midst of this chaos. There are good things uh, in this world, and I understand how that functions. Something that transcends the challenges that we are walking through day to day. Now, one of the challenges I've run into is often God's people are not prepared to walk into those opportunities because we're dealing with all our own stuff. We're dealing with all of our own concerns and struggles. We're struggling for community. We're struggling to walk in relationship with other people. And I know in my own family, my family spread out across uh, from Ontario, from Toronto to BC and um, to every province in between. And uh, in, on my side of the family, there's been some major conflicts around COVID that's broken down relationships and made life difficult. And that's just in the little family circle, never mind the broader relational ones. And so it's been a difficulty there. And then you spiritualize some of those things. And actually, I heard someone say just the other day, well, if you're a Christian, you should. And they were talking about some of the behaviors around COVID. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're spiritualizing that one? Like, let's be careful about what we're spiritualizing. And that's happened in multiple ways, in multiple scenarios. Along with that, depending where you are in the North American church scene, you have a lot of people who are questioning their faith, especially those who have grown up in the church. So we talk about deconstruction. People are deconstructing their faith. And it's especially true, as I've seen, for those who have, been, who have grown up in the church. And one of the things that I have observed is those who struggle most are those who probably have grown up in a church context and probably have enjoyed generally uh, an affluent or very comfortable lifestyle. That's where I see the greatest struggle happening when I sort of pull back to 30,000 feet. And the reason I say that is I serve in a community uh, that's very multinational. Uh, the visible minority in my neighborhood is me. So if you're a white guy, a white woman in, in my neighborhood, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, literally, it's the place. We live uh, two blocks from a large mall, the largest mall in the area. And uh, if you're white you, and you walk into the mall, you actually notice the white people because there's so few of them. And it's a, I love the multiculturalism of where I live, but it's just the reality of, of where I live. Our church is the same thing. There's about 75 nationalities in our church. And again, the visible minority would be white people. Uh, many are newcomers to Canada. And one of the things that really strikes me with the newcomers to Canada is their faith uh, is vibrant because they have often come from very difficult circumstances and if they haven't come from difficult circumstances, they've made great sacrifices to start a new life in Canada. And they've, if you're in Vancouver, you've also picked one of the most expensive places to come to to start that new life. And so they're making great sacrifices, often for their children because they want education for their kids, or they're coming from very conflicted countries. 
And so I look at their faith, and there's no deconstruction. There's this hanging on to Jesus, because that is the center of what, uh, where, their vi- where their life and faith and direction comes from. And it's been a great inspiration and a great challenge to me as I talk to these folks. And uh, to give you a sense of what life is like in Burnaby, if you're moving in, uh, the other day I was checking, because uh, I had to do some things for my taxes. Uh, so I was checking, uh, two be- I, we live in a two-bedroom condo. So I was checking the, um, uh, how much is a two-bedroom condo to rent if you're renting one in our, na- in our neighborhood? So Burnaby is just beside Vancouver. It's about 250,000 people, lots of high-rises and so on. So I went on rent faster. Uh, I said two-bedroom condos, uh, 1,000 square feet. Uh, there was one available in all of Burnaby. Uh, it was a two-bedroom, 880 square feet, and it was $3,000 a month. So you're trying to find a place to live? There was one two-bedroom available. If you want to buy a home in our area that you would tear down and build a home, like something really old, that's $2 million, $2.5 million, somewhere in that neighborhood, to buy a teardown. Uh, so you think about moving in from wherever in the world and trying to make it in that. And, but they're still coming. And so they walk with this vibrancy of faith. And so what I want to take us through is a biblical perspective on how would Jesus, what has he modeled for us to go, okay, how does, how does he live out his mission regardless of the difficulties around him and the challenges that society or our personal lives bring How do we walk into that? Because I believe the beauty and wonder of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, has never been needed more in Canadian society than it's needed right now. And I think as God's people, if you're here as a Christ follower today, we have this incredible opportunity in front of us to share what God has given us in relationship with him. Now, some of you might be worried, going, oh, no, okay, he's going to lay a guilt trip on us for everything that we should do or could do or ought to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. But what I want to do is actually show you what Jesus did and how he lived this out and what he's actually inviting us into because the world needs a spirit-led, authentic picture of what it means to walk in relationship with Jesus and what that looks like for people who are searching desperately right now. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what are the first words that Jesus heard from his father recorded in the Bible? What are the first words that Jesus heard from his father recorded in the Bible? They're in Matthew uh, 3.17 at Jesus' baptism. It said, a voice uh, from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Those are the first words written down in the Bible that Jesus heard from his father. There is no record in the, anywhere in the Bible of God the Father talking to God the Son, to Jesus, and in any form or way saying to him, here is the obligations I have for you, son. Here are the things that I kind of expect you to do. There's no place where he tries to sort of say, son, you know, you really need to get on about the family business. Like, you know, put down your hammer, quit the carpentry thing and go start preaching. Like there's no place you get obligation from God, the father to Jesus, the son. He never says, you know, you, okay, that's fine that you've been dabbling in this carpentry thing. You have more serious things to do. There's no place where God the Father tries to manipulate the Son or, or do anything in that way, the way we sometimes as parents do. You know, he never goes on to say, you know, Son, it'd be really great, you know, if you, fill in the blank, or I sure appreciate it if you would, you know, and then the obligation comes, or Son, I'd be really proud of you if you, fill in the blank, God never does that to God the Son. Or my favorite, as my teenage or my boys would attest in their teenage years, if they did something I wasn't happy with, and you know, I'm not angry; I'm just disappointed. (laughs) And one of my kids said to me one day, "Oh, don't be disappointed; just be angry. It'd be so much easier." 
<laughs> right? But it's a subtle form of manipulation. But God the Father never says that to God the Son. He never obligated the Son to do ministry. He never manipulated the Son to do ministry. So if he didn't do it to the Son, do you think he's going to do it to us? If he never did that to the Son, do you think he's going to do that to us? Now, some of you know your Bibles, you're thinking through, and you go, well, you know, the Apostle Paul said some pretty hard things to people about their behaviors and what they should be doing. But if you read through Paul's letters, the things he's talking about, mostly when he's correcting the church, he's saying either you are not representing God to each other and your behavior towards each other and how you're acting towards each other. You're not reflecting the heart of God. You are manipulating each other. You're not taking care of each other. You are, you are, uh, there's false teaching to each other. So he's correcting that. Or he's saying you are actually misrepresenting God, our father to the world around us. So his corrective teaching in his writing is always about, Hey folks, you are not actually living out what God has invited you to what Jesus taught you. And you're not reflecting God to each other or to the world around you. And Paul does say some very strong words. But it's always saying, let's get back to the heart of God. Let's get back to what Jesus taught. Let's get back to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. So what did Jesus model for us? So when Jesus started his ministry, he started with 40 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, You find that in Mark chapter 4. And then he regularly withdrew to spend time with his father. So in Mark chapter one, verse 35, it says before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. And Jesus withdrew regularly for times of prayer. Luke five sixteen says, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer before Jesus picked the 12 disciples. Uh, Luke six says, um, that one day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. That was just before he picked the 12. When Jesus said uh, later on in Luke 9, he takes his three closest disciples. And it says about eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And so you have this constant rhythm of Jesus spending time with his father. Uh, Luke 22, Jesus takes the disciples to the Mount of Olives. And it says, then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual. This was his habit to the Mount of Olives. And verse 44 says he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. So Jesus has this rhythm of fasting and of prayer that is part of his his life that is part of his journey that he's modeling for his disciples that he keeps inviting his disciples into And he's saying to be effective, he's showing us to be effective in his relationship with the father and the ministry that the father has given him is to have this rhythm of prayer, this consistent pattern of spending time with the father so that he would be prepared to give out and to do what he was to give out and to do. Jesus never spent time with the father out of obligation. He never spent time with the father because thinking, well, I ought to have my devotions today. You never get that sense from Jesus. He spent time with the father because he loved the father and the father loved him. He loved the father and the father loved him. I mean, we're here for a week to spend time with our kids. We did not come out of obligation. We do not feel obligated to spend time with them. We love spending time with our kids. We're going to go to one of our favorite places uh, this afternoon where we'll spend the rest of the week because it's a favorite place for us to spend time together. Plus, of course, we get to spend time with our grandkids. So like, here's a picture of uh, my, my grandkids. Exactly. Like who does not want to spend time with them? Like I always told, uh, so I, I did lots of premarital for a whole bunch of couples who, from Sun from West. Uh, early on, and I always say to them, you know, once you have kids, and especially if your parents aren't, don't live here, because at that time, very few people had extended family here. I said, don't even get annoyed when you go to their house and, and they don't even say hi to you. They just take the grandkids. I said, in fact, milk it for a free trip home. Like, let's just be upfront here. Because your parents will pay for that free trip home because they want to see the grandkids. 
right? As grandparents, we just love spending time with our kids and our grandkids. There was no obligation. Jesus never spent time with God, his father, out of obligation. That's not what he did. In fact, when you have people who are trying to obligate you or manipulate you, manipulate you in some way, what do you want to do with those people? You want to stay away from those people. If you feel that people are trying to manipulate you or obligate you, you're trying to stay away from those people. Jesus intentionally ran to his father to spend time with his father. He says he got up early to spend time with his father. And he modeled for his disciples how to spend time with the father. That's what he is inviting us into. When we are around people who give us energy, who speak into our lives, when we, those people that we have that kind of relationship, we make time for those people. We want to be with those people. We'll carve out extra time for those people. Why? Because they give us life. Because when we leave that time together, we go, man, I feel better. I feel stronger. I feel more insightful because of time with these people that I love. When you're around people who obligate you and try and manipulate you, you leave that meeting and you're like, I am so tired. And I'm going to avoid them for a while because I need to recover from that meeting. You never get the sense from Jesus. He's recovering from time with his father. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And everything around us in society, especially with the advent of social media, is trying to manipulate, trying to, trying to move people in a certain direction. And if you don't, what do you get? You get canceled. Or you get shamed. Or you're called names in some form to try and create obligation towards specific behavior or thinking. It's the exact opposite of how Jesus works. So how does Jesus work? So I'll tell you a story. I think it was 2008. Uh, I was on sabbatical, like Pastor Matt's on sabbatical. And for that sabbatical, uh, part of that sabbatical was uh, I went to Africa uh, for about a month. And, and it was uh, the purpose of that trip was to see where SunWest could connect for missions in Africa. And uh, for the first couple of weeks of that trip, I went with Trent Burstad, who uh, is one of the leaders here and preaches here sometimes. So Trent and I spent the first couple of weeks uh, being in uh, Burundi and Rwanda and South Africa. And crazy trip, all kinds of crazy things happened. Uh, we had a great time, but even things such as uh, we got to London, England, Trent gets on the plane, and I'm actually barred from getting on the plane because I said I didn't have a ticket except that was the exact paperwork I used to fly from Calgary to London. Uh, I caught up with Trent two days later in Rwanda, and uh, he didn't know that I couldn't get on the plane until the plane left without me. Uh, So, yeah, it was all kinds of goofy things that happened uh, in that trip. But after the first couple of weeks, Trent came back home, and I went on to Mozambique uh, to spend some time with Iris Ministries. And at Iris Ministries, the lead uh, couple there, Roland and Heidi uh, Baker, uh, we were in a class there because there was this um, mission school that they did, and some SunWesters have attended that school there. And while we're in that class, Heidi said something that stuck, has stuck with me ever since, and that I want to unpack for us this morning very briefly. She said this. She said, if you remember nothing else about your time here, she said, remember this. Intimacy with Christ leads to passion for Christ, which leads to compassion for others. Intimacy with Christ leads to passion for Christ, which leads to compassion for others. And then she says, if you get this wrong, you will, you will be doing good things for the wrong reasons. If you get this wrong, you will be doing good things for the wrong reasons. So the order is very important when God is calling us to spend time with people and reflect the goodness and wonder of the gospel of the good news. So first way that to love the world, Jesus's way is loving the world. Jesus way begins by developing an intimate relationship with Jesus. It begins by developing an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus understood that his ministry was fueled by his time with the father. Jesus understood that his ministry was not only fueled, but it was led. It was directed. It was inspired. All the details of it were communicated 
by his time with the father. He would spend time with his father so that he knew what to do. He would debrief with his father afterwards. Same thing he did with his disciples. He would instruct his disciples, and then he would debrief with his disciples after that ministry event. Ministry does not begin with need. Ministry does not begin with compassion. Ministry begins with time with the Father. It's not about your gifting. It's not about the opportunity. It's not about the need. It's not about being a compassionate person. That's not where it begins. It begins with an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot gain perspective on what it is that God wants us to do unless we are spending time with him. Now, you can study all about Jesus. You can study all about God and actually not know him. You can study all about him and not know him. When I was doing my, my studies, whether that was in, uh, in Bible school or seminary, at different points, <clears throat> I had professors who I would say knew all about God, but I did not have a clear sense that they knew God. And I had others who knew all, knew all about God, and they walked with him very personally and intimately. Every university has a religious studies department and Christian studies by people who do not, led by people who do not believe in God. And every, pretty much every university has that department. Jesus always describes his relationship with his followers in very intimate terms. John 10, 27 says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's this familiarity that is obviously there between Jesus and his sheep. There's an intimacy that happens. A number of years ago, I had the the, uh, opportunity to go to Israel. And as you're driving through the countryside, you'll see still, you'll see sheep herders just like 2000 years ago. And when a shepherd is with his sheep, he, he's not driving them like you drive cattle from behind them. A shepherd walks in the middle of the sheep and they're all around him, and they follow him. He knows them. He calls them by name. There's an intimacy that is there where life in Christ and direction is nourished and is discerned and find its source. Intimacy with God is fundamental and foundational to actually loving the world. That's where you actually get the heart of God. There is no obligation in God's mission that he gives us. There is no have to in God's mission. If we participate in God's mission out of a sense of obligation, we have missed the point. In fact, we're probably trying to earn something from God and hoping that our good works will get some form of return from God or some form of blessing or something that we're trying to get him to do for us. That's usually what we're trying to do. And we've missed the point. Preparation and participation for God's mission begins by spending time with him. By spending time in God's word, not for the information, but to meet the person of Christ. Because the Bible is the revelation of a person. Sometimes people say this is a, the Bible is a manual for life. Well, there are great things to take from the Bible to guide you in life. But if it's just a manual for living, we've missed the point. It's the revelation of a person. So Jesus spent time with the father to to develop an intimate relationship with him, to know the father's heart, to gain the father's direction, to learn the father's voice, to be in step with the father. How do I know? Listen to what the book of John writes. And John 519, John said, so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Chapter six, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me not to do my own will. Chapter seven. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Now, sometimes people think, well, of course, Jesus could do, uh, to, could do um, what God told him to do because he's Jesus. I mean, he's God. So of course, Jesus can do this. But remember, we're told in Philippians, Jesus laid aside his divinity. 
So he is serving his father in his fully human condition. Filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. That's how he did his ministry. That's why he is spending time with his father. So in other words, he did his ministry the same way God calls us to do our ministry. In the leading and the power of the Spirit. Because he laid aside his divinity. So saying, well, of course he can do that. He's Jesus actually minimizes what Jesus did in the leading of the spirit. And it puts him in a different place. And then actually makes a whole bunch of things he said about himself untrue. Because Jesus said, well, that we can, he can identify with us fully. Well, he can only do that if he's fully human and being tempted as we are tempted, which the Bible says he was. So we do ministry the same way he did ministry in the power and the leading of the spirit. So first point, loving the world Jesus' way begins by developing an intimate relationship with Jesus. Second point, loving the world Jesus' way grows by developing passion for Jesus. So first you have the one, you have the relationship. What does it mean to grow in uh, passion for Jesus? It means to grow in your understanding and appreciation for what he did on the cross. It means to grow in your understanding of what it means to have your sins forgiven by him. And when you see the ugliness of your own sin and the beauty of the cross and the extent of grace that is extended to us because it covers anything and everything you've ever done or anything that's ever been done to you or any thought you've ever had or that you will have, God says, because my son, it's all covered. It's all forgiven. It's all taken care of. And the more we understand that, the more we gain a a sense of, of passion for who he is, a love for who he is and what he has done for us. We recently had a set free retreat, uh, which I know SunWest hasn't had yet, but I know your leadership has talked about it. And a set free retreat is a Friday night and Saturday where you go through uh, basic teaching on um, different areas of our lives. So relationship, forgiveness, our sex uh, sexuality, uh, spiritual warf- warfare. And as the teaching goes, you're looking at areas of your life where these things have been issues, whether through your actions or things that have happened to you. And then you pray, you confess those things in groups of three and you pray through them, seek forgiveness and find new freedom in Christ. Hence the name set free in the middle of the retreat. Uh, there is a section on the cross. And we talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross And then there's a section where we reflect on what Jesus did uh, using scenes from the movie, the passion, but an 18 minute segment. And if, and if you've seen the movie, the passion of Christ, uh, it is hard to watch when you see how Jesus was tortured and you see what he went through for you and for me. And I've been through this retreat, I think four or five times now. And every time I watch what Jesus sacrificed For me, uh, I am overcome with emotion. Now, I'm a good German. Overcome with emotion in German, like that's usually not in the same sentence. Right? Does not happen very often. But you watch this and you're just like, oh my goodness. What Jesus endured in going to the cross in my place was so horrific. And we're in this room with about 200 plus people and people are weeping. And we have some crosses set up and they're going up to the cross and they're touching the cross and they're just saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did for me. Had a guy in my office the other day. He's uh, Iranian, new to Canada, horrible background, uh, very difficult has some struggles here and he's telling me the story of being there. And he says, when I went up to the cross and I touched the cross and I laid my sin at Jesus's feet at the cross, he said, the instant freedom that I felt was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. And then we walk out of that into worship. I remember standing in the front row worshiping, because once you see the, the beauty and the ugliness of the cross and recognize the grace of God, it just draws something out of you and worship in a completely different way. And I'm trying not to weep and trying to sing and worship, but I can hardly sing because I'm crying so much. And I'm watching our keyboard player in front of me who's trying to play and then he keeps wiping the tears and he's going back to playing and he's wiping the tears. 
Because it's just the, the incredible beauty of what Jesus did. That incredible sacrifice. And you just gain this heart for the beauty and wonder of the cross. As you walk through your stuff and you keep giving it to Jesus again and again and again. And it gives you a heart for him. You just begin to love him. Not just the truth of who he is. But the wonder of who he is. And his obedience to the father out of his love for the father and that relationship with the father. He just goes, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do because I trust you. So how does that play out then? How does that play out? Intimacy with Jesus, heart for Jesus. So Jesus has this intimate relationship with his father and a heart for obedience to the father. Here's how it plays out practically. Uh, Back to Mark chapter one, verse 36. So Jesus has been praying and the, the disciples find him. And it says later, Simon and the others went out to find him. And when they found them, they said, everyone is looking for you. Now you tell me which human being doesn't like someone else to come up to them and go, Hey, everyone is looking for you. Everyone loves you. Everyone is depending on you. Everyone needs you. Which human being does not want to hear that? Everyone wants to be loved by other people. Everyone wants to be appreciated by other people. So disciples are coming to Jesus going, Jesus, you're their hero. Jesus, you can fix what ails them. Jesus, they are all here waiting for you because you healed and you fed. Jesus, this is good news. Hey, Jesus, this is a way for us to kick off this revolution that you've come here, this new kingdom. And of course, the disciples had their own version of that in their minds. And they're like, Jesus, this is awesome because everyone is going to follow you. Jesus, you need to go to them. So if you're trying to launch something, this is the best news possible. This is the best news possible. That's what they had hoped for. And if you're not walking in the spirit, if you're not walking in that relationship with Christ, if you're not spending regular time with the father, listening for his direction, speaking into your life, if you're not building that intimacy, you will not have the discernment to know what to do when everyone's looking for you. You won't know how to lead out of a spirit-led life because you'll lead out of your emotions. You'll lead, you'll lead out of your own needs. You'll lead out of your own insecurities or out of your own fears. Not out of your convictions, not out of a spirit-led place. You see, so often we have this twisted version of what we think success is. Now, success is often used in terms of careers and those things. But what is success as a Christ follower? Some people say, well, it's doing great things for God. Or it's really serving in my church. Or it's really serving in the community uh, on behalf of, you know, of God in God's name. That's what success is. What did Jesus say success was? John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Or John 14, 21, which says, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Jesus says, success is simply this, being obedient to my father. Success as a Christ follower is simply being obedient to God. Whatever it is he asks us to do, that's what success is. Not the human version of success, which is here are the results. Jesus says success is simply obedience. God does not need or want us to do anything for him. He does not need that. God does not ask us to do great acts to demonstrate our worth to him. That's not accurate. God will not bless us for our human version of success. It's simply relationship and obedience, walking with them and doing what the spirit leads you to do. That is what success is. And Jesus had the clarity of mission because of his time spent with the father. That is what he did. So what's the end result of this? Or sorry, I'll go back to verse 38 here of, of John, uh, or sorry, of Mark one. It says, but Jesus replied, 
We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them. I'll preach to them too. That is why I came. And then verse 39 says, So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So what does Jesus do when they say, Jesus, everyone's waiting for you? He leaves. He walks away. They're saying, but there's this crowd waiting for you. They love you. Jesus goes, no, that's not what my father asked me to do. He asked me to go and do these other things. So he walks away from the crowd. And he goes on to do other things. Because he knows the heart of the father. And the other understands success is obedience to the father. Simply put. That's all God asks of any one of us. Walk in a relationship with me and simply do what I ask you to do. Which you won't know unless you walk in intimacy with Jesus. Last point. Loving the world Jesus' way gets practical when we then develop compassion for others. So you get the heart of God, you get passion for Christ, and then you get his heart, which gives you the compassion for other people. Because you see them the way Jesus sees them. Because now you see them the way Jesus sees them. Because as Romans talks about Romans 12, to get the mind of Christ, you think like Jesus thinks, which is in alignment with the Father, with the perspective from the Father. So when you see other people, you can go, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? Holy Spirit, guide me. What do you want me to do here? Because your life is aligned with the priorities and purposes of what the Father has for you. I was thinking about this this morning as we were talking a little bit about some of the tragedies that uh, families tied to SunWest have experienced. And one of the things and tragedies that everyone often struggles with, especially if you're not like really close to the family, is, well, what do we do? How do we support these people? And uh, the, the best and simplest way to figure out the answer to that question is to simply pray and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Like, don't jump ahead and go, well, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. Just go, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And listen. And you go, well, I don't know if it's the appropriate thing to do. No, you don't. But if you're walking in obedience, God will honor that. And it might be, text them. It might be, phone them. It might be, bring them some food. It might be, why don't you invite them out? Like, I don't know what it would be. But if you're saying, I don't know what to do, which most people don't know what to do when there's tragedy. Simply say, God, lead me. Pray about it. When you feel that nudge, do it. No strings attached. Just do it. And let God speak through you. And it might be a family you don't even know. And you just go, you know, I just feel nudged to bring flowers over. I just feel nudged to extend a kind word or to say, I'm praying for you. Because so often we don't know what to do, but when we're trying to create it in our own thinking, then it's always often about us. Did I do the right thing? I don't know if I did the right thing. Well, just do the obedient thing. Just do the obedient thing. That's all God asks you to do. And in our world, which has so much baggage around so many things. And right now in North America, <clears throat> excuse me, so often the word evangelical has become a bad word. And there's all kinds of political correctness, depending where you work or what circle you walk in. And you say, well, I, want, I don't want to be intolerant. I don't want to be a bigot because I'm going to be called that. Especially if I talk about, you know, Jesus is the only way to God and people are going to be upset with me. So there's all these things that we're trying to navigate our way through. All these things that we're struggling with. And we focus on things, when we focus on things that we're trying to navigate and often that we are afraid of, we miss the point of what God wants us to do. We miss the point of what God wants us to do. Canada is in desperate need of a vibrant, unified church, a vibrant, unified bride that walks in intimacy with the Father, that has the heart of Jesus. And then lives out that compassionate heart in obedience to the leading of the spirit. And I keep hearing reports, as I said before, of people from across the country. And we see this in Burnaby every weekend. People are walking in the doors going, I've never been to church. Excuse me. I've never been to church or I used to be be at church years ago. I'm wondering if there's something here for me. And it's happening week after week after week. And I hear the same thing happening right across the country. 
People are desperate for hope. People are desperate for truth that transcends all the chaos of their lives. There's something to hang on to when everything is shaking, but that comes out of the place where you are spending time with the Father. I had an experience well, probably 20 years ago now up at King's Fold, which is just uh, west of Calgary. I was at a retreat there with a bunch of pastors, and um, it was a three-day prayer and fasting retreat. And so we'd be out, um, uh, you know, worship, and then we'd go out walking the, the land and the mountains there and praying and saying, God, what do you have for us? And we're in one of those worship, sen- uh, one of those worship sessions, and I felt the Lord saying, I'm going to let you feel what I feel for people who don't know me. And it's like I felt something literally touch my chest. And I started, again, again, German and weeping uncontrollably. Like one of the three times in my life, you know, kind of things. But I just lost it. And I, the weight on my chest was, actually, I said, God, you got to stop. This hurts too much. But he's like, I want you to feel what I feel for people who don't know me. And it was one of the most overwhelming sensations I've ever felt in my life. It's happened once in my life, but it's marked me for 20 years. I go, this is what God feels for lost people, for people who do not know Jesus. And I go, okay, if that's what God feels, then I need to orient myself with that heart for people. And we grow that as we spend time with them. All we were doing is spending three days going, God, speak into our lives. Whatever it is, no agenda. Whatever it is that you want to speak into our lives. And when you feel what God feels for people, you stop categorizing them. You stop labeling them. You stop describing them in negative terms. You just go, God loves that person. And he loves that person. He loves that person. Regardless of where they come from, regardless of what their nationality is, regardless of what their story is, God loves them. And in our cancel culture, we so often forget that people are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. People are not the enemy. And we cannot confuse the two. Remember the people that Jesus was hard on were the people who thought they were spiritually and morally superior to others. Those are the people that Jesus called to account. Anyone who misrepresented the Father, Jesus called to account. How did he feel about everyone else? Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. It says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. The world is desperate for God's people to respond to the sending of the Holy Spirit, to reflect the beauty and wonder of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us. People are looking for something in their anxiety. They're looking for something in their struggles. They're looking for something in their isolation as some are coming back into community or but perhaps being afraid of it. Friends, they need you as Christ followers to live out the vision statement of Sun West to guide all people into an authentic lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. And authenticity is so key to be real, to be yourself, to walk with Jesus and reflect that to others. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we draw to a close. I think people are looking for something to put their faith into. They're looking for someone to trust. And that someone is Jesus. But you are the representatives of Jesus. People are looking for hope. People are looking for truth. And it's God's people who are simply living out that relationship with Jesus and following him in obedience and the leading of the spirit, not out of obligation, but out of this beautiful place of intimacy with Jesus. And simply walking in obedience. If you do that, friends, you are successful. And you are reflecting the beauty and wonder and loving this world. Jesus's way. That's what he invites us into is first of all, that place with him and that experience with him. And out of that place, he will lead you. He will lead you into the relationships, into the scenarios 
that he's prepared for you from before the time you were born, which the book of Ephesians tells us. Because this is the best news in the entire world. And our world needs it now more than ever. The word amen means may it be so. We sing amen, we're saying yes, Lord. May it be so. May this be true. As we close, we'll have uh, prayer uh, ministers available at the front. If you're in a place this morning, you may be in a place where you just need prayer because of challenges in your life or difficulty or, or just some of the tragedies that have been going on that you're connected to. You might be in a place to say, God, I have not been walking in intimacy with you. I've been learning about you. I've been living out of obligation. And I want to repent of obligation because that's, I'm putting something on you, Lord, that is not true. If you want to do your own business with Christ, maybe you just want to come and kneel at the steps and just come and spend time in prayer with him and to him. Maybe you're in a place this morning, you say, I just need more of the Holy Spirit. And as I close in prayer, maybe you just want to raise your hands as a sign of saying, God, I want you. I need you. Come and fill me and guide me and lead me every day to reflect who you are. The Lord wants to meet with you in intimacy, just like he did with Jesus, just like Jesus taught his disciples and he's teaching us. And it's out of that place that he wants to work in you and through you to love the world Jesus' way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are not a God of obligation. You don't have this list of items that you say, do these things and I'll accept you. That's what religion is. That's not what you're about. And because of the incredible, gracious, and wonderful work of Jesus on the cross, where our sins were taken care of once and for all, and and because of his resurrection, where death was defeated once and for all, we have new life in you. If we simply come to you and say, Jesus, come and be my forgiver, come and be my leader, come and be my friend, forgive my sin, remove my shame, conquer my fear. I give my life to you. Jesus, I pray that if we don't know you today and we're here, we would take that first step of response to you. Say, Jesus, I put my faith in you. And if we know you and we're struggling, we would step out in faith and say, Jesus, I need you. And perhaps that's coming forward for prayer or perhaps that's praying in our seat or perhaps that's just getting on our knees on the steps here at the front saying, Jesus, do business in my heart and in my mind. I want to walk in obedience to you. I want my life to match Jesus' definition of success, which is simply obedience to the leading of the Spirit and to walk with you and reflect who you are to this world and to love this world your way. Be with us as we do that, as we go into this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace.